Yeah, I would really encourage you. If you guys have never been to Mexico and built a house down there, there are a few things I've done in my life that are more fulfilling than that. It's just such an incredible thing to do. The only thing you, you regret is you wish you could do it every weekend. I mean, I mean, what are you going to do that's more important than building a house for someone? And uh, when you get done with the thing, you hand the guy the keys, you know, every time, it's just such, an, such, a, such a, it just feels right. Like, gosh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my time. And so even if you don't know a lot about construction or whatever, the first time I went, they, they put me in charge of drywall. They go, hey, hey, Chan, you ever done drywall? Ah, oh, yeah. I didn't know what drywall was. <laughs> I, I mean, literally, I didn't know what it would even look like. And I'm looking around for something dry. Anyways, I, <laughs> and then I totally screwed up because I didn't know you had to, you know, match it up to the studs. And so at that house, I guess, you know, the drywall started falling down on them. And uh, they vacated it. But, uh, but, but we went back, we fixed it, and now they're living in it. So, uh, it, you know, I, I would just really encourage you to do that. Go out, get out to the missions table. Meet Kevin Oates. I mean, those of you guys who don't know Kevin, if you were to ask me who in this church is the most knowledgeable guy in Scripture, I would say, hands down, Kevin Oates. Um, that guy knows the Bible. I mean, he looks like his little 16-year-old punk, but he... Uh, <laughs> He's actually like 30, and he is working on his doctorate in theology. I mean, his schooling is way beyond mine. People that call the church and have a, you know, a question biblically, they refer him to Kevin, not to me. You know, you need a good joke, call Francis. You know, you need <clears throat> Bible, go to Kevin. So I really encourage you, get out to the missions table, get to know Kevin, um, and get to know what you can do. Because I've been excited this last year, obviously, at the growth of the church. I mean, anyone can see that. That's just amazing. But... The thing that I'm even more excited about, honestly, has been the growth of individuals and uh, the growth in our missions department here at the church. And the last year has just been revamped and has grown uh, so much. And I'm so excited about that because God's desire for the church is not just that we get a bunch of people attending. His desire is that everyone that attends is actually maturing in their faith. And we're becoming people whose lives are more and more pleasing to God, you know, doing things that he likes. You know, and avoiding things he doesn't like. And, and that's what I love about these letters in Revelation because they give us a, a glimpse into God's mind and they allow us to see, well, what does God really like? And what does he really not like? I know some people, you know, as we've been studying these letters, they're like, gosh, when are we going to get to the good stuff in Revelation? You know, when he blows things up. <clears throat> you guys, to me, th- this is some of the most critical things we can learn are from Revelations 2 and 3. Because these are letters to churches. I mean, can, could you imagine if God wrote us a letter here at this church? And he said, you know what? This is what I like about Cornerstone, and this is what I hate about Cornerstone. And I would love to have a letter like that from God. Because we're trying so hard to please him and do the right things and everything. But I don't know. We're probably doing some things wrong. And, you know, and you just want to please him. And so we, we don't have a letter that's directed straight to Cornerstone, but we've got the next best thing. You've got seven letters that are written to seven other churches, and God picks apart each church and tells you what he likes and what he doesn't like about them. Remember the church in Ephesus? He explained, you know, I like a lot of what you do, but you guys don't love me. It's like this cold religion where you're doing a lot of good things, but I don't, I, I don't see that you love me. You've lost your first love because if you don't start loving me, I'm going to destroy that church. I'll remove its lampstand from its place, and that's exactly what he does. And so that reminds me, gosh, I need to love God. He doesn't want me just to be in this cold, okay, you're God, so I'll do whatever you say. But beyond that, yeah, I do that. But beyond that, he wants me to come before him and say, God, I love you. 
you know what? This is a relationship with my Creator. And hopefully you're still doing that. Hopefully you learn that from the letter to the church in Ephesus. We learn from the church in, in Smyrna, the letter he wrote to them, the persecuted church, how pleased he is when we are willing to suffer for him. Not just serve God when things are easy, but when it's difficult in life. He tells that church that he expects them to be faithful even if it means dying for him. That's what God likes. That's what he wants, the type of commitment he wants from us. We learn from the church in Pergamum. Remember the last time we were, we were in this book, we learned from that church that God was not okay with all these different types of teachings in the church. There are false teachings, and, and God says, look, why are you tolerating all these different types of beliefs in your church? Because I want you to tolerate the truth and only the truth. And you realize from that, okay, God doesn't want us just to accept whatever anyone believes. He says, I want you to know the truth, the truth of my word and accept nothing else. And so as we read these, we go, okay, so that's God's heart. That's God's mind. And we're not guessing, going, ah, I think he likes this. I think this would be it. And that's what a lot of people do. A lot of people go, you know, I feel God. That would be like me going, hey, you young man, I feel like your favorite kind of music is, is probably country. Your favorite kind of food is probably Italian. And your favorite movie of all times was uh, uh, Rocky. <laughs> you look like an older man. <clears throat> all right. Now, what, what's your favorite kind of music? Is it country? Really? What's your favorite kind of food? Is it really? You're serious. <laughs> no way. What's your favorite kind of, what was your favorite movie of all time? Not sure. Just any good one you've seen. <laughs> Gladiator? That's pretty close. See, okay. <coughs> wow, this is the first time I've been good. Everyone, I had totally screwed up. But I can see through you. Um, Gladiator. Now, I could leave there and go, you know what? I know he said Gladiator, but I really think it was Rocky. I know it's Rocky because I feel it, and I just know it. Now, now, that would be ridiculous for me to say that after he already told me, no, 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 my favorite was Gladiator. For me to go back and say, yeah, I know you said that, but what I think and what I feel is that your favorite movie is Rocky. That would make no sense. And yet that's exactly what we do to God. Okay, God has already said in his word, this is what I like, what I don't like. And what we have all around the world, people even call themselves Christians, go, yeah, I know he said that. But I really think that God doesn't really care that we're living together because we're in love. And I think that God doesn't really care if we divorce because we hate each other. And I don't think that God really cares if I don't claim all of my income on my taxes because he doesn't like our government anyways. <laughs> and, you know, I really feel like God's okay if I smoke pot because he, he created it. And we can say all these things and go, you know, I feel like think, and yet when God's word has, when God's already told you the exact opposite, who cares about your feeling? Ken, why, why do you go, well, I think he's okay. Read the book. And that's why we do this is because especially in these letters, God tells you exactly what he feels about these issues. He tells you exactly what he likes and what he doesn't like about these churches. And, and with this church in Thyatira, there's, it's no exception. He tells them exactly what he likes and what he hates about this church. And, it, and it's a tiny little church, this church in Thyatira, a small church, and yet the longest letter of all the churches is written to it. And he says to them, 
in verse 18 of chapter 2, Revelation. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Yeah, so you know from that, that uh, intro right there that he's got something serious to say to this church. He goes, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Because here's a message from the Son of God. You don't have to guess. You don't have to think what I feel. Let me just tell you. Verse 19. <clears throat> I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So he says some good things to him. He goes, I know your deeds. I goes, I know your love and faith. Unlike the Ephesian church, these guys love God. They had faith. He goes, and I also know that you're doing now more than you did at first. So it's not a church that's dying and doing less and less for the kingdom. They're doing more and more. It seems like they're loving God. They're, they're, they, they've got faith. But then verse 20. <coughs> Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So God says, this is what I don't like about this church. He goes, you tolerate, you put up with that woman Jezebel. Okay, interesting thing. The woman Jezebel that he's talking about here, there's a woman here who is leading you know, God's people. She's calling herself a prophetess, saying, you know what, God speaks to me. I feel God saying this. And she's persuading people into these sexual acts outside of marriage. You know, and the church is kind of listening to her and they're tolerating her. Now, this woman, her name probably was not Jezebel. Okay, and you're like, well, then why does Jesus call her that? reason why he calls her Jezebel is Jezebel is a character in the Old Testament. Jezebel, if you read the Old Testament, was one of the most evil characters in the whole Old Testament. I mean, try to read through the Old Testament and try to find someone more evil than Jezebel. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. Okay, King Ahab was the king of Israel. And so Jezebel is his wife. And she manipulates him. She gets all sorts of power. In fact, she, uh, she was so evil that she tried to destroy, first of all, all the true followers of God. She's trying to get them to inter- intermingle their, their follow and worship of God with this worship of Baal, which was this idol. And he's getting all these Israelites into uh, immorality. Not only that, but you know how evil she is. She tries to kill all of the prophets of the Lord. That was her goal, is to try to kill them all. And she almost did. I mean, there's only a couple that escaped. She, she had them slaughtered, beheaded. Elijah's one of the ones that got away. The rest she got, she killed. And she wasn't king. She was just the wife of the king. And somehow the king was letting this go on, so God judged him for letting his wife influence him like that. Because if you really study the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament and the reign of King Ahab, you realize that he was a very weak ruler who allowed his evil wife to really influence the nation more than he did during his whole presidency, his whole uh, uh, kingship. <laughs> he, uh, it was really his wife that uh, during the whole time Ahab was king, you know, it was his wife that was influencing and doing more. And, and by the end of the reign, you don't remember what Ahab did. It was just, what, what did his wife do? And so, now, now here's the interesting thing, is, is if you read that story, okay, Elijah was still alive, and God sends a message through Elijah. Elijah goes to Jezebel, and he says to her, 
God is going to bring you to a sudden death and your flesh is going to be eaten by dogs. That's exactly what happens. Um, and he judges Ahab and, and has all of Ahab's kids killed. Uh, it's a pretty intense story. But it's interesting because if you look at this this woman here, and that's why I say her name probably wasn't Jezebel, because who would name their daughter Jezebel after that? You know, and yet Jesus calls her Jezebel because of her actions. And then look at what happens to her in verse 21. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Does it sound like God is okay with this woman and what she's teaching? But, you know, what if people back then really felt like they were really in love and, you know, and this stuff? Look at what God says. Listen to the words that God uses here. I mean, the fate of Jezebel in the Old Testament sounds very similar to the fate of this woman and her followers. I mean, God says, I've given her time to repent. It's not like this is the first time he warned her. He says, I've given her warning. And she, she, she's unwilling. She's not going to repent. He goes, therefore, so, verse 21, I will cast her, and look at this phrase, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Is that an interesting term he uses? A bed of suffering rather than this bed of adultery? I'll throw her on a bed of suffering. And I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. God seemed casual about sexual immorality. Unless... They repent of their ways, unless they can change, unless they'll walk away from it. They've still got time. Then verse 23, (coughs) I'll strike her children dead. I mean, her physical kids, like with King Ahab, or maybe her spiritual children, the ones that were following her in those ways? Not sure. Either way. Why? Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Why does God say he'll do that? Because I'll strike them down, then all of the churches will know, not just your little church in Thyatira, but when everyone hears about this, everyone will know that I really do search hearts and minds. I really know what's going on in the churches. And he goes, and I really do repay people for their deeds. Yeah, I'm patient. I'm a patient God. I'm, I'm holding back my wrath, but I want people to see that I'm serious about my wrath. And I will pour it out. And then in verse 24, he says, Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. I I like this verse because he says, okay, to the rest of you, because obviously this wasn't everyone. He goes, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who have not held to her teaching. He goes, what I want you to do, he says, I'm not going to put a bunch of burdens on you. I'm not going to impose a heavier burden on you. He goes, just hold on. Until I come. What does he say to the people who were not following Jezebel in her ways? He doesn't give them a bunch of other things to do. He says, just hold on to what you got. Don't give in. That's a message to those of you in this room who haven't given in. He's saying, you know what, hold on. Those of you who are being tempted and you see everyone else around you doing certain things. He says to you, hold on. He, he talks to them. He, he says, you know, to those who uh, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. What does that mean? What are Satan's so-called deep secrets? Not sure. 
Um, possibly, uh, maybe Jezebel was standing up as a prophetess and saying, look, I'm going to tell you things that you haven't heard before. Tell you some deep secrets of God. You know, and that's when she started intermixing. You know, you know how a lot of cults do that? You know, it's like, okay, this is what the Bible says, but we've got some deeper things that go beyond God's word. It's kind of what Jezebel was doing. And therefore, God here says, those aren't deep secrets of God. Those are deep secrets of Satan, of anything. Um, that's a possibility. Or possibly she just told the people, hey, I've got some deep secrets from Satan that will help your life. You know, and God's saying, you know what, these so-called deep secrets, regardless, just stay away from it. Just get away from whatever it is that she's teaching and stick to God's word. And he says in verse 26, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. So he says, to the ones who overcome, to the ones who actually make it and obey it and don't follow her ways, the true believers, he goes, I will give you authority over the nations." So he's telling those in the church that we're still living a pure life. He goes, hold on, and you're going to rule with me. I believe he's talking about the millennial kingdom here, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. He talks about later on in Revelation. He says, you'll be the ones ruling with me over the nations, and we'll rule over them, and it will be like an iron scepter that can smash pottery to pieces. Because you'll be with me, and we'll rule over them, those people who might right now might be the most popular, whose teachings may be infiltrating the church, and everyone is looking up to them and tolerating it. Well, one day, if you hold on, we're going to rule over them. We're going to rule over anyone else who refuses to follow after me. And that was his promise to those who hold on to the truth. Then in verse 28, he says, I will also give him the morning star. <coughs> what is the morning star? I believe it's an allusion to, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's referring to, Matt, to uh, Matthew. Daniel 12:3, where it says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But somehow those of us who hold on to what is right and stand firm in our faith that somehow we'll reign with God forever, we'll shine like the stars, the brightest stars forever and ever. And what that means exactly, I'm not sure. Um, a lot of things in Revelation we just kind of speculate, but obviously it's a good thing. And then in verse 29 he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and that's how he, he ends, ends his letters is, you know what? Can you listen to this? Do you understand this? Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen to it. Do you understand the, the, the mind of God and what we learn from this passage? There's so much. I mean, one of the things I learned and I understand now about God based upon this passage is that God does not want his church to tolerate sin. He doesn't want the church to just kind of go, okay, I know that's going on, but you know, we'll just let it go on. Why? Because in, in, uh, in, in verse 20, he, he says, he goes, this I have against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. You know she's there. You know what she's teaching. You know what she does. And yet you leave her in the church. God is not okay with that. God doesn't want us just to tolerate that stuff that goes on in the church. In fact, if you, if you read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 Corinthians 5, God tells us exactly what to do if someone in the church calls themselves a Christian and yet is involved in this, these types of immoral acts, and they're not seeking to repent, they're not trying to change. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. That's pretty clear. He says, if you got someone in your church that calls himself a brother in Christ, and yet he's full of all this immorality or, or whatever it may be, and he's not seeking to repent of it, he's not turning from it, he goes, don't even eat with the guy. Don't call him a brother. And he says, expel him from your, your midst. Don't let that guy stay in the church. And he's not, he says, I'm not talking about unbelievers. He says, I'm not talking about people from the world. I mean, maybe some of you, you know, you're, you're just here. You're just checking things out. You don't really believe in Jesus yet. You're just here to check out the church, see if you want to believe in God. You know, your life is your business. The, the reference here is talking about those who are in this church and call themselves brothers or call themselves Christians. The people who give you, you know, that bad taste in your mouth about church because you go, you know, that guy calls himself a Christian. Look at what he's doing. God says, get those people out. If they're not going to change their ways, they need to be out. I mean, I, I, I had a, a, a gal tell me, it was probably a month or two ago, she goes, you know, a friend of mine called when she found out that I went to Cornerstone. She's not a Christian. But she goes, you know what? You go to Cornerstone? I know someone in that church that's actually serving in the church. And he's having an affair with one of, one of my best friend's uh, wives. And your pastor doesn't do anything about it? You guys just let it go? And, she, and I said, well, what did you respond? And she says, well, I told him. You know, I told my friend, you know what? If my pastor knew, uh, that guy would be gone. And I said, yeah, well, thank you. That, I mean, that's exactly it. You don't, just, you don't just call yourself a Christian and... You know, tell everyone, hey, I go to Cornerstone, I'm a member there. And then you go messing around with someone else and call yourself a Christian? I mean, it kills the reputation of the church. You become a member of this church, call yourself a Christian, and go shack up with your girlfriend? Man, it kills the reputation of the church, the reputation of Jesus Christ. He wants the church to be a light in the world. And so if you don't want to become that, then get out of the church. Um. Because it, it, it dims the light, it destroys everything that we stand for. And that's why the church has such a horrible reputation in the world today, is because of that. And I'm not saying you don't sin. Look, I screw up every day. I'm sure I've sinned a hundred times today. You know, I mean, we're sinners. The issue is our, well, maybe not a hundred times, okay. But, you know, everyone's like, wow. He's... But, uh, you know, I'm not saying we don't sin. You know, I'm just saying, gosh, you know, it's that desire for holiness, the desire to walk away from it. God doesn't want us to tolerate it. And, uh, you know, another thing I learned about God in this passage is uh, God's warnings eventually expire. You know, you know how he says that in verse 21? He says, I've given her time to repent, but she is unwilling. God says, I've given opportunity, but she hasn't done it. So that's it. That's the thing I learn about God. There comes a point when he says, look, I've given you plenty of opportunities. You're not going to change. And his warnings eventually expire. And as I was thinking about that, you know, it says in Psalm 103, how he's not going to hold back his anger forever. It talks about how he's a very gracious, loving God. But 
He's not going to hold back his anger forever. And you can hear warning after warning. And if you're not going to change, eventually he says, that's it. No more warnings like he did with Jezebel. And that's what I learned from this passage. And I thought about that. And I thought, you know what? This morning I'm going to talk about these issues. And yet if, one, if, if you guys are in affairs, if there's people in here that are caught up in immorality or you're sleeping together outside of marriage, you know what? Um, is one message really going to change your life? Are you really going to walk out of here and go, okay, that's it? And I thought, man, what can I say? Um, and I just realized, you know what? It's another warning, but some of you, you're not going to change regardless how many warnings you hear until God finally says, all right, forget it. I gave you enough chances. And I wish that weren't so, but uh, you, you just see it so often. And I know the temptation's got to be so strong because some of you that are in those types of relationships, you think, ah, oh, but there's so much feeling there. It feels so right, and I, I just think it's real love. First of all, it's not love. It can't be love. Because if you really love someone, would you really do something that would cause them to, to be offensive in the sight of God? No, it's all about feelings and selfishness. But whatever it is, those feelings get so strong that even if you leave her convicted, a few hours later, oh, but I love him or I love her. And you have those feelings back and you go right back to your sin because it's so hard. And I know it's difficult to walk away. But at the same time, man, understand, God's only going to warn you so many times. And I've just been praying for this morning. I've been praying for last night. That God would just do a work. Because I, I don't have the right words to influence someone. But I just pray that God would work on your heart today. Because um, God, God hates adultery. I mean, didn't you see that in the wording in this passage? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you know what, every other sin, some people say, no, all sin's the same. So if you lie, you sleep with someone, the same thing. No, you guys, all sin is not the same. Not if you read 1 Corinthians 6 when it says, all other sins a man commits are outside of his body. But the man who sins sexually sins against his own body. He says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's in you. The Holy Spirit, if you believe in Jesus Christ, His very Spirit is in you. And God says, and then you're going to commit a sexual act which involves this very temple of God? He says, that's disgusting. You're going to join the temple of God into the sexually immoral relationship. God hates adultery. I mean, there are few things in Scripture that God hates more than adultery because it involves your whole body, your whole being. And it involves you, the very temple, the Holy Spirit, and taking that into your sin with you, taking the very Holy Spirit of God with you. And that's why he speaks so strongly against it. And for some of you who think, well, no, in my case, it's love, it's beautiful. There's nothing beautiful about it. God is repulsed. He says, keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled. It's reserved for marriage and marriage alone and anything else. It's disgusting in his eyes. And remember, another thing I learned about this is God knows everything. God sees everything that we see and think. Because remember when he says, uh, he says, I'm going to kill our children. He goes, then all the churches will know what? That I'm the one who searches their hearts and minds. And everyone's going to know, I really do know what's going on in your mind. I really know those thoughts. Like he says in Psalm 139, how he knows our thoughts from afar. He goes, that'll prove that I really know. Look, I don't know what's going on in this room. If I had to guess, I would say this. Based upon my counseling over the last seven years here, if I had to guess, I'd say 35% or so of the men in this room 
maybe higher in the satellite room. Um, no. <laughs> but I'd say this would be my guess. About 35% of the men in this room are involved in some sort of pornography. Um, struggling with pornography now in the internet, magazines, whatever. I'd say about 20% of those who are single above the age of 14 are, are currently in relationships that are sexually immoral. I'd say about 5 to 10% of the married couples in this room, uh, one of the partners is currently having an affair. Probably one out of every 20 couples or so. Um, and as I say that, some of you are just feeling so sick. You know I'm talking about you. And so you put on your greatest, you know, blank stare, poker face, and I, I have no clue who you are. You, you do it so well, your, your spouse doesn't even know. Males, females, whoever. And I, I won't know. You, you, and they won't know. And my prayer has been that at some point in your life, you'd realize that God knows everything that's going on. And at some point in your life, that you would fear him more than you fear me finding out. You'd fear him more than you'd fear your own spouse finding out. You'd fear God. Because he knows everything and he expects us to remain holy even though we live in an, an immoral world. I, I know this world is sick. I know the temptations that are out there. Man, it's crazy and we fight it and yet God says you hold on. I don't care what everyone else says and does. I'm telling you who are faithful, hold on. Guys, the reason why he says that is because there is nothing like peace with God. <coughs> For those of you who are in those sins that I'm talking about, you feel sick when you come to church. You feel sick when you hear messages like this. You feel sick when you try to worship. You can't even pray to God and feel totally right. And if you do feel that, it doesn't matter because he is not pleased with you. And it's a horrible feeling to know that. And it's such an incredible feeling to have the peace and to do things the way God wants you to. I did a wedding here just yesterday afternoon. And as a bride and groom were walking down the aisle, man, I, I don't know why this thought came to my head, but as they were walking down the aisle, I just start, I started thinking about my wife, and I, I just prayed to God. And I said, God, you know, as they're walking down, I, I just said to God, God, you know, I don't ask you for a lot. I mean, I really don't. I go, God, I don't ask you for anything selfishly. But if I could have one thing that is selfish, would you keep my wife alive as long as I'm alive? Because I, I just, I don't imagine being with anyone else. I don't want to be with anyone else. It's, it's just so good. It's so right. And I just beg God. That, that's all I want. All right? And, and, and I, I say these things because I know how good things can be when we pursue what God wants and the way God's designed it and created it. It can be so good to have that peace. God's not saying all these things because he's trying to beat you over the head and destroy your life. He's saying, gosh, I created you. I know the way to ultimate fulfillment. It's through my word. And so today, you know, Chris is going to come up and he's going to sing this song. And this is, pro this is the best song I've heard in at least a year. Uh, the words of the song, would you just listen to it and consider obeying it? Now, the ushers are going to take an offering while this song is going on. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray right now. I pray for truth to be known. I pray that people would just repent, walk away from their sin, and walk to you. God, that you would restore us and purify this church. In Jesus' name, amen.
means to do a 180. You're walking in a certain direction. You don't just stand there and cry over what you've done, but you actually turn around and you walk the other direction. Gosh, I pray that this is the morning that you do that. That for those of you who know you're walking in the wrong direction, it's not pleasing to God, regardless of what you feel. You know now from God's word that you would walk away from it. And I say that because, man, God is a forgiving God. And if you look in Scripture, you see any time someone came to Jesus and said, just look at how sick I've been living, God embraces those people. The ones that God rejects are those people who pretend, no, I'm okay. You know, that's not really a sin in my life. And they hide it, and God rejects those people, the Pharisees, the religious who had said that they lived a certain way but really didn't. They weren't seeking to please God. And we just want so badly for those of you in this room that are walking in that sin, though no one else but God knows, that that would be enough for you and that you'd walk away from it this week. Hey, guys, this is what we as a church stand for. I had a guy come up to me after last service. He goes, what are you doing, trying to make more space in the in the church, you know? So I go, man, it's just what we got to preach because this is what God honors and this is what pleases God. He wants his church to be holy above all things. Um, so if you need to walk away from something, walk away. And we'll see you next week.